On this edition of the Scott Radley Show, we are going to be talking about the judicial inquiry into the Red Hill Creek fiasco. Not about the fact that we need one. We do. We need something. We need transparency. But they're telling us now this could possibly take over a year and starting at $7 million? Come on. Really? We're also going to be talking about something much more pleasant, chocolate. Easter is coming up. We're going to talk chocolate. Have some nearby because it will make you hungry for chocolate. And a special treat, we're going to replay an interview we did a few years ago with W.P. Kinsella, the 30th anniversary of the movie Field of Dreams. Beloved movie, wonderful movie. 30th anniversary is Sunday. We talked to him about the writing of the novella Shoeless Joe, the novel Shoeless Joe, pardon me, that became Field of Dreams. It's a great interview. It's a great, in, great guest. He's fantastic. He was fantastic. All coming up. Stay with us. Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. We are diving into this judicial inquiry about what happened with the Red Hill Creek Expressway. People have died. It's, I mean, it's an important thing. There were no, there's, there's absolutely no mocking of this. People have died. It's an important issue. There, were, there was a report, at least one report, that apparently, as we've been told, got lost, never was found, that may have said or did say that the asphalt was less grippy and that may or may not, we don't really know, have led or contributed to these. I mean, there's a lot of things about this. So it's, it's not a funny in any way. It's not something to mock. We're not doing that. But the reports now that we are, and remember you heard that the city, that city council voted a while back that they were going to have a judicial inquiry, that they've chosen to go down this route. And at the time, at the time, and, and to this day, right now, I still applaud city council for transparency. Transparency is a better idea in a democracy than hiding behind closed doors or hiding behind a wall. We want our government to be transparent. So I don't, I don't begrudge, I don't criticize city council for saying, hey, let's do what we needed to do. Let's make sure that this gets brought out into the open. That That is absolutely fair. And again, I'm not, I, I said that before and I'm not changing my mind on that one. I think it was good that we want to have a transparent, open process to discover what went wrong. Not necessarily just for this, but to make sure that this hasn't happened other places. That said, today the news is out. That, well, two pieces of important news came out yesterday, today, about this inquiry. One is that this thing, $7 million for now, for now, has been set aside or is being set aside to cover the cost. That's the, that's the upfront $7 million. They're saying it could go up to $11 bucks. And the other thing is, this thing, they're looking for a judge right now, but it has to be a judge who is, well, if this thing is going to go longer than a year, and they're saying now it could go longer than a year, it looks like this investigation, this inquiry is going to go on longer than a year. And some of the judges are near retirement, so they don't want to lock into someone who's going to be retired. Leave the judge aside for a second. We are talking about an inquiry into how a report got lost in someone's desk or someone's computer at City Hall. Now, there are other things that the city would like to have answered. There are 24 questions, apparently, the city would like answered. They want things like, who saw the report? Uh, should counselors have seen the report? Who discovered it? Did the delay in finding this report put the public at risk? I mean, there are a number of questions. 
But think about this one for a second. There, how many people, how many witnesses possibly, possibly could be involved in this? Two dozen? Let's say three dozen. Let's say there's 36 people who are involved because there can't be that many people. You've got the counselors who were on council at the time. Maybe you bring them in. You've got the people who are in that office who hand, who could have or potentially could have seen this report. You've got the people who wrote the report. And maybe you've got a few people who will discuss whether or not the findings of the report really did have an impact or could have had an impact on public safety. I don't know who else you're bringing in. Maybe a few others. Let us, at the highest end, let us go crazy for a second and say four dozen witnesses, 48 people. Forty, and I think that's an incredibly high number. I think that's way higher than we will see. But anyway, let's say let's say forty-eight people. Otherwise, you're starting to stretch into goofy land. But even if you have forty-eight people, how in the name of all that is pure and holy do you stretch that into an inquiry that's going to last more than a year? How does that take you more than a year? I mean, if you do the math, and I did the math today when I heard about this, the city has roughly sixty-five hundred employees. If you brought in every single city employee and interviewed them for half an hour, only using regular work days, you would still do that in under a year. That's 6,500 people. That would be just regular work days. That would be under a year. How in heaven's name are we talking about an inquiry that is somehow going to potentially go on for longer than a year? Remember the Dubbin inquiry the, the, into the, when Ben Johnson was caught doping with the stenazolol and they discovered that all the, they started to interview all the Canadians because that one was an international scandal. That was a, that was so much bigger than this one. Now, nobody died. I understand that. But as far as an international moment of shame, that thing was off the charts different than this one. That one called 122 witnesses. You know how long the Dubbin inquiry lasted for? 91 days, three months, the Dubbin inquiry lasted for this one. We're talking about 12 months, four times longer, maybe longer than that. And I'll tell you why that is, why I think that is. I always joke with myself that I work like a gas, which kind of sounds gross, but that's not the point. If I have to do something within an hour, gas always fills the available space that it's in. That's what gas is. A liquid fills drops down with gravity and fills the gas fills the entire space it's in. If I have an hour to do a job, I will do it in an hour. But if you give me eight hours to do a job, somehow I just end up taking eight hours to do the job. We are telling these people with the judicial inquiry, take as long as you need. Well, guess what? Who is not going to take as long as they, you're talking about a bunch of people who are going to be on the clock who are going to be allowed to investigate for as long as they want. They've got seven. Here's the thing. We've already put up 7 million bucks. What do you think the chances are that they're going to get this thing done early and say, oh, you know what? It was only 2 million. No, no, no. That's never going to happen. This thing is guaranteed to cost at least 7 million because that's what they've said is the minimum. There is, I will bet you there is zero chance that they finish this thing early. They come up with the answers and they say, you know what? We only blew through $3 million. Here's the rest of your money back. No chance. No chance. Whatever the parameters are that you give to do it, that's what it'll take. As far as I'm concerned, give us your best $1 million inquest. We're good for a million. Give us your best. Do what you can with a million bucks and then we'll figure it out. 
Let me go to Karen. Karen, how are you tonight? I'm good, thanks. How are you? I'm great, thank you. Well, why do you think, first of all, this thing is going to take so long, and are you okay with it, like going this long and costing this much? Actually, I'm not okay with it, and um, okay, I, I need to step back a bit because I would like to know why the City of Hamilton employees who received this report on the Red Hill Expressway did nothing. Well, that's what we and want to find out. Held, wait, and are they being held accountable for it? Well, that's what we're going to find out. And, and, and I'm with you on that one. To that point, absolutely, I'm with you because we've got to make sure this doesn't happen with other reports, correct? I mean, that's, uh, let's, well, we can't go back in time, but we can certainly prevent this from happening in the future. No, but if they do find out who these people are and they should be accountable, they shouldn't be working for the city of Hamilton anymore. A lot of people lost their lives. A lot of people were injured in the number of years that this report was held back. And it's absolutely disgusting one of the questions, Karen, just hard to interrupt for one second. One of the questions that we're going to hopefully find out, and again, I fully support this part, is yes. does the did the asphalt contribute to these accidents? We may find out that it didn't. We may find out that it did. That's going to have an impact on whether or not somebody... Well, but you're right. We have to find that answer out. Absolutely. But the city paid a huge amount of money for that report. It did. And it was a number of years ago. I mean, it must have gone through a number of hands at the city of Hamilton. And nobody did anything about it. Like Karen, I agree where, with you. I don't agree with that. But in regards to the, the judicial report, I, I don't think it's, it's crazy about what they're charging for the judicial report, but I think it's necessary to find out why 100%. no future lives are lost. I agree with you 100% on both your points, Karen. I think it's crazy how that this thing is going to take over a year, they're saying, and that it's going to cost this much, but we do need to find this out. Surely, though, it could be done shorter and less money. But Karen, I appreciate your call. Thank you so much. Thank you. Let me go to uh, Fred. Fred, how are you tonight? Not bad, Scott. I'm glad to hear your your beautiful show. Thank you very much. I appreciate that. Yes. Uh, The reason I'm calling in, I uh, was involved with this, getting this Red Hill done, okay? And I remember at a meeting that they were going to pave the road with tires, rubber. And I think that's what made it slippery the pavement. Well, we may, we're, that would be something that presumably we will find out in and this. I, and I'm surprised nobody brought that up because I remember at the meeting they uh, talked about it was a new way of doing something and uh, the company did it, eh? And I think the company that did it should be sued. Well, uh, you know what? We got to find out first from the experts about whether or not the asphalt is the cause of these accidents. That's an important part about this and we should know that. And if it was, then we take the steps from there. If it wasn't, we want to make sure this doesn't happen again. Right. But Fred, here's my, my belief on this one. The reason this thing, we got to go, the reason that this in- inquiry is going to potentially take over a year and cost the money that it's going to is because it can. It's be- if you give the parameters and say, you know what, we got to be done in three months, I'm telling you they will be done in three months or well, five months. Anytime I've seen anything go through the city as a taxpayer, it's always cost us more because it's got the word city taxes. Any public, any public body, Fred, any public body. That's right. I appreciate your call. Thanks for calling. Thank you. Radley at 900CHML.com. If you have thoughts on this, I'd love to hear from you. Why do you think it's going to cost this much and take this much time? Because I think it's crazy. It can be done for in less time for cheaper. I guarantee you, I would guarantee you. You're listening to the Scott Radley show podcast on 900CHML. I hope you know what weekend this is, because if you don't, you're probably going to show up for work on Friday and the door will be locked. That's the first reason. The second reason is, 
Uh, it is Easter weekend, by the way. I'll give away the answer. Spoiler alert, Easter weekend coming up, so be aware of that. Uh, the second most important part of Easter weekend is the stuff that you get to eat, which is the chocolate. Yes, it is chocolate weekend. I mean, there are other reasons for Easter weekend that would be more important, but it's chocolate is uh, certainly a part of the whole experience, uh, certainly these days anyway. Uh, and in the studio with me, and I got to tell you... The, uh, Every November we have some we do something on the show called Novemberger. It's a, it's in the city and it's a gourmet hamburger thing. And one night during November we have a bunch of the restaurants come in and we sample burgers. That is always my favorite show of the week. For the listeners, I don't know, but me personally, yes. My this is going to become, I think, my second favorite one. Lena Almeida from Chocolat Favoris. Did I favori? How do I? Chocolat Favoris. Oh, see, Excellent I have to say it with the French accent. No, I, I messed that up. <laughs> um, is in studio uh, now. That is a. It was what a. a Chocolate, um, a chocolate it. shop. Yeah, so in, it originated in Quebec. in Quebec 40 years ago. In fact, okay. this year is their 40th anniversary. Wow. So it has a cult following in Quebec. I, I think the recognition rate is, you know, close to 100%. Wow. And so, you know, it's just, it's... Big chain or one store there originally? There are 44 stores across Canada. So it's okay. not a huge chain, but a, a great percentage of those are in Quebec where it started. And it's just a family tradition. So if you think about, you know, on weekends, what, what do families in Quebec do? They go for hand-dipped ice cream or chocolates at Chocolat Favori. And I think what sets them apart is that it's pure chocolate. And when I say pure chocolate, I mean there's no artificial flavors or colorings and no additives. And in a world where, like, oils are added to dilute products, um, you know, it's very, very hard to Mm. find uh, a product that's completely pure. And that is what Chocolat Favori is famous for. So before we get into that and some of the stuff, do you know, I don't know if you're a chocolate historian or what, but, <laughs> but but I was trying to figure out today why Easter and chocolate, where's the connection? Do you, do you know why Easter and chocolate are so tied together? I don't. I The only history I could tell you is part of my own just growing up. It's the first memory of Easter, I think, for families and especially young ones. I don't Easter know. Egg we're hunts we're probably from the same generation, but oh, I remember. Oh, you're much they, younger than me. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I'll take the yeah. compliment. Um, I remember the Easter eggs wrapped in foil, and the thing is that the actual chocolate inside the egg wasn't very good. <laughs> didn't matter. You were a kid. It didn't matter. We were kids, and it was the novelty that you received chocolate at Easter, and, and now, could eat chocolate first thing in the morning absolutely, and be buzzed. Absolutely. And now it's 2019, and we do better in 2019. Well, so. we try to see. I, I, the only thing I could find today, and I wasn't sure if if I if you knew something. The only thing I could find was maybe the end of Lent. If that was the reason why, because Lent ends, you don't eat chocolate, and all of a sudden Easter morning yes. you get to blow your brains out. Well, you know what? I think you're on the right track there. I don't. I feel like giving up chocolate is probably one of the most popular, you know, um, things that people will pledge for Lent. Right. And so Easter morning, man, you can make yourself sick. Yeah. Let's go. Let's go crazy. (laughs) And uh, how now do you know then? So the chocolate business, we know you go around any store right now. It's an enormous business. Do you have any idea how big it is? Tell me. I don't know. I have no idea. I I wish I had come more prepared with with some numbers for you, but I don't. All all I know is that there's a reason why chocoholic can appear (laughs) in the dictionary. Exactly. Exactly. We don't have licorice-aholic. Licorice-aholic is a different thing. (laughs) That's alcohol. No, but we don't have other candy names that tie into it. It's This is it. And if you say the word chocoholic, you instantly know what the person is speaking of. And I think that it's for young and old and across cultures and across generations. It's just, it's synonymous with not just being a treat, but I feel that in certain cultures as well, um, not to 
say that Quebec has a different culture, but specifically in Quebec, they really revere good, like high quality, good chocolate. Well, let's talk about that. I've been down, I don't know if you've ever been down to Hershey, Pennsylvania. I've been down to Hershey to the, to the, uh, the factory down there. And I will tell you that building maybe the best smelling room <laughs> anywhere in the world. You walk, I believe you. I think they, I'm sure they pump the smell out. So when you walk through the <laughs> store, you can't walk out without buying something, but that's, that's mass market commercial. They, they are what they are and that's, yes. a, that's successful and people love that. This is something different. There is a, in 2019 now there are, and for the last number of years, there are boutique chocolate shops like this one. Yes. Who is the market now for that? Because there's a market for Hershey and for those companies. Who is the market for this stuff? I think pretty much everyone now because we are, I think Canadians in general, we're getting a little bit more discerning with our palates. So we appreciate good food, fine food. There's a reason why in my generation, in generations maybe after me, I'm just noticing the restaurant culture. So you mentioned, you know, just people going out, but it's not just, it, it, the restaurant culture is now part of our life. So we want to enjoy good food and that extends to our chocolate, our confectionery, everything. So it's funny because I was actually introduced to Chocolat Favori by a friend. And one day she said, you know, I whenever I go to Quebec, this is before it was in Ontario, um, I grabbed this chocolate. Would you like to try some? And I did. And from that moment on, I actually ordered it online and had it shipped to my home. Because again, when you find something that you just feel is higher quality or something that you feel is different, I think it's just really easy now to say that I want that in my life. Well, and there are people certainly, I mean, Walker's Chocolate in Burlington and in Hamilton, same thing as, yes. a, as a boutique, as a handmade chocolate. So there there are stores around, but who is the, is there a gender, is there a, an age group? Because I can't, I, I don't think that probably t- teenagers, well, they're probably with their parents, but is there an age group that has said, yeah, they've really latched on to this kind of thing? Yeah. And you know what, teenagers, so Chocolat Favori in shop has hand dipped ice cream cones. It's not bad. That's an Instagram moment. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, for teens and, and even up into early twenties, they're going to the shops just because they're, they're being rewarded with a beautiful, a beautiful item that they can capture on Instagram. And then if you go a little bit older, say, you know, 30s or 40s, then you're just really appreciating you work hard and you want to make sure that what you're purchasing is high quality. And then I think what we're hoping for in Ontario in in years to come is that maybe the older generation of grandparents, they want to share that moment of something that they've loved for years with their grandchildren. So I think it encompasses all ages. I've got something in front of me here that is not chocolate or is not what I would expect from a chocolate factor because when there is when I look at, when I expect chocolate there is milk chocolate which yes. is like a light brown mm-hmm. there is white chocolate which pr- predictably is white ish yes. and there is dark chocolate which is very dark brown this is pinkish almost purple almost a mauve dare I say almost a ruby well <laughs> almost it, it is called ruby it is called ruby and what so, is ruby so essentially just like you said we know of the the traditional chocolates but for the first time in 80 years, they've they've made a huge discovery in chocolate, and that is the ruby cocoa bean. And now you can find the ruby cocoa bean in Ecuador, Brazil, and the Ivory Coast. But here's the really exciting thing about ruby. What you see there in your hand, and, and for the listeners, it's mouth. just, yeah, it's <laughs> it's like a light pink colored, um, colored piece. 
There are no artificial colors or flavors. So what you are seeing is actually what was extracted from the ruby cocoa beans. So tell me, Scott, what what are you tasting? Berries. Berries, yes, exactly. Yep. So most people who taste ruby will say that there's a either a sour cherry or a blackberry, you know, or even a mixed berry undertone. Mm-hmm. And to know that what you're eating right now is pure from, you know, that was harvested from the ruby cocoa bean. It's just so many people are so excited about it because it's just a different flavor profile. Now, when you say that they was discovered or when they've just found this, they can't have just discovered these beans. So did they just discover they could make this out of it? Exactly. So, I mean, it's, it's been in the works for years, but of course, whenever you find any new raw ingredient, it takes a while to figure out how to stabilize it and make it, you know, something that consumers everywhere will enjoy. So It's good. Yes. It's really good. I mean, it, it is, it would not be what I would describe as typically chocolate flavor. Okay. I mean, it doesn't have the overwhelming exactly. chocolate flavor that you would have from a... It's it's not a a berry flavored chocolate that you would find in the store right now, no. and and you could you can find that. No, this is. I'm trying to do the wine tasting thing where you're yeah. swooshing it around and trying to find the. <laughs> I know, appreciate hint, that. It has Thank hints you. of saddle leather and uh, and tar <laughs> along with its berries and chocolate. I, I'm not there. I've got berries and I've got a little bit of chocolate in it. Yeah. Is this something? I mean, everybody's always looking for something that people are going to grab onto. Is right. this something that is? Doing that? Is this something that people are coming into the store or going wherever? And is this only you guys that do this? No. So Chocolat Favori especially is going to be doing something extremely special with Ruby. Now I can tease that you need to be in shop. So it's they're going to start on Friday, April 26th for a very limited time. And the reason it's limited, it's literally while supplies last. So while they have Ruby and they're able to share it. Um, with their customers, they will. So the closest... You get to bathe in it. Oh. No? Okay. I, 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 I was trying I'm, to guess. Maybe it's like... You, uh, make make I, you react a certain way and go, oh, I got it. The, no, no. <laughs> Not so much. How's my poker face? Yeah, yeah very good. <laughs> it, it not, you will not have a chance to bathe in ruby chocolate. No, you will not, but oh. you will enjoy it nonetheless. And the closest shop um, to the Hamilton area is Guelph, so very close by. And, and can you order online? Because you do have online. So you cannot order ruby online. This is going to be an in-shop experience only. So it's definitely something. So why, if, if they have this and if yes. it's very popular, why not, is it, is it, well, why not just make it a full-time thing? Well, I can tell you this. What I've brought in for you to taste today is, you know, it's, it's a sample of Ruby, but this isn't something that they would be selling online or, you know, and to answer your question, will they make it full-time? Maybe when mm. they have more of it to, uh, to be able to share with everyone. But for now, I think they're just so excited about the what they've brought to the table with Ruby that... What about other things? Because we have different people, well, people now who have different diets, different... Yes. Uh, we have people who, you know, lots of vegans, vegetarians. Yes. You, do you have... Is there anything like that in the world now that people... Because you can't make vegan chocolate, right? You can, actually. No, and it's available it's, at Chocolat Favorite. No, you can't because chocolate, <laughs> the essential ingredient in chocolate is cocoa and milk. You, you so Chocolat Favre does have a vegan option in store. Now, admittedly, I'm not, um, oh. I don't have the nutritional background of it, but it is, it is, yes, exactly. It's certified vegan. And in fact, for Easter, so for Easter, they have what we'll call chocolate friends in different characters. And there's actually a bunny called Malia. Wait a second though. Can a vegan eat a chocolate bunny? Because that's, that's almost eating an animal. (laughs) (laughs) 
You would have. To, you would think it would be a chocolate Brussels sprout. You know what? I never thought of that. It is a chocolate vegan it's a moral bunny. Dilemma. But now you're you're kind of blowing my world. A bit. <laughs> they have to have chocolate broccoli and chocolate yes. Brussels sprouts for the vegans. Of course, I can chocolate say it's, tofu. It's at, I'm not a vegan, and I and I do find the vegan bunny quite delicious. <laughs> so it is. Um, it is. This is very delicious. The ruby is very good. Um, I've seen online. I was looking today. I, I, I do actually want to make a trip now to the store because it has made me hungry to look at it. Uh, it's in Guelph. It's also online, but uh, Chocolat, Chocolat Favori yes, is Chocolat the place. Favori. You can find it online. Uh, Lena, thanks so much for coming in. Really Thank appreciate it. Thank you for it. having me. We'll take a break while I uh, down the rest of this. Maybe save one for Will. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. We used to have a guy who would uh, work on the show. If you've been listening for any period of time, you remember he was an operator. He Luke did the what Ben is or and Will are now doing. And I was just Luke was about to walk out the door today and go on his merry way home. And I said, "Wait, stop! You got to come into studio because today is Luke's last day at 900 CHML." That's right. Bolting for black and golder pastures. <laughs> sure. Going to work for the local football squad. Yeah. Congratulations. Thank you. It's uh, a bittersweet day, I guess. Yeah, I guess. <laughs> you know, it's exciting. It's an exciting opportunity, but at the same time, you know, I've done this for six years, which is uh, a lot longer than it feels like when you're just sitting in that chair on the other side of the glass there. So Playing Ice Ice Baby. And, and, and that's why we played it, because Luke would torment <laughs> me with that wor- one of the worst songs ever composed, stolen from Queen. Well, see, no, because Under Pressure by Queen is a part of my it, regular rotation. It's a beautiful song. It's a great song. And so I enjoyed, you know, sometimes throwing it in there to keep you on your toes. It's, Just, like, uh, it's, like, it's, like, it's like Vanilla Ice took <laughs> Under Pressure and gave it a prostate exam musically, uh, and that's what you end up with with Ice Ice Baby. Anyway. While you're here, because I was going to do this with Will, because I got a story, but you know what? You're going to do it today. We're going to talk, because this is a story from England. A couple decided that they were going, you've seen those commercials on TV for Ancestry.com. Yeah. Where you take the DNA test, you spit in the tube and you send it in. I believe my father-in-law has actually done it. Is that right? Yes. And what did he find out? Do you know? I don't know. I don't know if we've gotten the results yet. Well, this couple thought, hey, this is going to be great. This is going to be hilarious. We're going to find out that we were all descendants of... Nordic warriors or something, Vikings. I don't know what they were going to find out. Anyway, so they take the DNA test. Um, it ended their relationship. <laughs> and here's why. Now, I've heard about this before. As I was reading this story, I thought, oh, I know where this one's going to go. Thankfully, it didn't go there because I have read the story before of the people who took the DNA test and discovered... That they were uh, first cousins, I believe. Or related, <laughs> yes. That you are very close relatives. That would be really awkward. Yeah, I mean, you discover depend- that your brother and sister adopted. You know, they were adopted at birth, and you've uh, that that I don't even know what you do. If Ten that years married, and we Ten found years out. married <laughs> with three kids, both who have or all three who have four heads. Um, <laughs> I mean, you probably should have been a clue, but I mean, if the kids are healthy, you know. But still, if you even if it was ten years, and this story was about people who've been married for a while, and they took the test and found out they were birth siblings, which is just, that would throw you, I don't know what you do in that case. This is not that bad, but what they discovered and what ended the relationship was that the boyfriend discovered that he was a direct descendant and they don't say who it was, but he was a direct descendant of an infamous serial killer or related somehow to an infamous serial killer. And his girlfriend said, no, out. Can't do it. Can't be. 
you're married. If you yep. were to take this test and you were to find out that your wife was related to a bad, bad, bad person, no jokes about her in, about your in-laws, <laughs> would that bother you? Or would you no. say, whatever, no, it's not on. you. Uh, sins of the father, that, that kind of thing, right? Who cares what your, what your relative did, especially like. I don't know. It's a, she said, the story said ancestor. Well, uh, can it, we assume not like son? Because we would probably. Well, it wouldn't be her son because she would know that. No, if no. She, what I mean is that the like. child who was a serial <laughs> killer, no, 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 presumably no, no, no. she would know. I mean that he was like the son of a serial killer. It doesn't killer. say, because ancestor could be first. I mean, again, you could be a, an, a you could have been given up for adoption or that. Yeah. F- you don't know. Ancestor could be anything. But even know. if you were the kid, even if you found out you'd been put up for adoption or you knew that, and you were the child of some horrible, the Zodiac killer or whatever. I mean, would it really? <laughs> well, we don't know. We don't know who that is, but <laughs> would it really bother you? No, because people are their own, like... Just because your parents were horrible doesn't mean you're horrible and vice versa. Just because your kids are horrible doesn't mean that you're horrible. Most serial killers' parents are like, well, I never knew. We just, we gave them such a great upbringing. Like, I don't think Jeffrey Dahmer's parents were aware of what was going on. They probably weren't teaching him that stuff. So I think they're probably okay. See, my thing about this is I think the wrong person was upset. The girlfriend being upset that he was a descendant of a serial killer. If anybody has a right to be upset, it's him that he's got the DNA it coursing around in his body of a serial killer potentially. That's probably fair. I think the wrong person got bad. Now, if I found out that my uncle was Jeffrey Dahmer, it might throw me for a bit of a loop. A little bit. I think, although it doesn't, although it doesn't suddenly make me have an urge to go kill someone, eat them and burn them in acid. I, I don't think that the connection is there. This girlfriend who suddenly, what does she expect that her, all of a sudden her boyfriend that she's known for presumably a while is going to suddenly turn gonna into a murderous, suddenly. crazy yeah. man? Yeah. I, you know what? These ancestry tests, they only, they only end in tears. That's, you just, just don't do it folks. That's my public service announcement for. So is Chris, so you and Christine have not taken we, your DNA test. We have test. not. Although it gives me an opportunity for my favorite story about ancestry tests. And this is uh, from a, somebody who worked for an ancestry test website. If you, when you submit yours, say this had better not come back with X type of DNA. Usually that's something a racist says, shockingly. They say, I don't, it better only be white or it better, you know, not have this. Guarantee you get a small percentage of that DNA. Back. Is that right? Yep. Well, because- Just to throw it in and just throw to, you off? Just throw it in. Because when it's at that, they say, this guy says, when it's at that small of a percentage, there's no way you can prove otherwise. So they do it because you've said you don't want it and they've determined you're probably a horrible person if you don't want it. So- uh, See, I, we got to go. I like, <laughs> I, I like to believe that it's truly 100% accurate and I believe it would be, but that's also kind of a, a good way to deter a little bit of racism. A little bit. Yeah. It's fun. Luke, enjoy your time with Thank the you. Cats. Hopefully they um, don't stink. That's the idea. Luke Vermeer, last day. He's leaving the building right now. Say goodbye to him. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. On Sunday, not only Easter Sunday as it turns out, but Sunday, coincidentally, is the 30th anniversary of the release of the movie Field of Dreams, which is a wonderful movie. If you've never seen Field of Dreams, I don't know what you've been doing with yourself. One of the great movies of all time, one of the, you know, especially if you're into baseball, though it's, I mean, it's a baseball movie, but it's really, that's the, that's the scene it's in, that's the environment, but it's not really a baseball movie per se. Anyway, 30th anniversary. Well, back in 2012, 
Adam Greenberg was a baseball player of sort of. He had been a major league baseball player who was supposed to get was supposed to make it to the major leagues. He was going up for his first at bat and he got plunked in the head. And if you get hit by a pitch, it doesn't count as a major league at bat. He never got a chance to hit. The plunking concussed him. It hurt him. He was never able to make it back to the major league. So in 2012, if you recall this story, near the end of the season, there was a petition signed to have Adam Greenberg get one at bat at the end of the year with the Miami Marlins. And he did. He got to go up and have one at bat, got to have his at bat, which fit with Field of Dreams because Field of Dreams, that was part of the story. Moonlight Graham and all the rest. So at that time, early in my days here on the show, so forget, I haven't heard the interview since, so forgive it. We talked to W.P. Kinsella, who was the author of the book Shoeless Joe that became Field of Dreams. He was telling the story of Field of Dreams and how it came to be. We're going to replay that today because 30th anniversary is Sunday. Here is W.P. Kinsella from 2012. And we are honored W.P. Kinsella joins us now. Welcome to the show. Thank you for joining us. <laughs> nice to be with you. Now, I don't know if you are a prophet or if it's just that in enough time, everything that you could imagine will eventually happen, but it, it is bizarre that the story that you wrote as fiction 30 years ago is basically coming into flesh and blood tomorrow in Major League Baseball. Well, truth is always stranger than fiction, and of course most of my character, Moonlight Graham, was was actually truth. Well, absolutely. Tell me, now we're going to jump around a little bit, but I, I don't know that a lot of people know that, that Moonlight, Archibald Moonlight Graham was in fact a major league baseball player who, as you describe in your story, never got to have a major league at bat. How did you stumble upon that name? Because until you wrote it, nobody pretty much had ever heard of it. How did you come across that name? I was given a baseball encyclopedia for Christmas one year, probably about 1979, and I was just leafing through it, and I saw the name Moonlight Graham, and I just thought, oh, what a wonderful name for a character. And uh, then as I was uh, working on my novel, I thought, well, now, is there some way that I can work this guy into it? So we took a drive up to Chisholm, Minnesota, and found out that this guy was so much larger than life. He was so much more than a baseball player who didn't, to get to come to bat. He was the town doctor for 50 years and was beloved by everyone in the uh, neighborhood and everyone in Chisholm had a Doc Graham story. So, I mean, it's almost unfathomable, really, that, that had you not had, had you not come across that, he would not have been part of this, this story. I mean, it, it, it almost yes, seems like the story would have been empty without it. Yeah, luck plays a huge part in uh, everyone's life, I think. Now, as you were writing this story, I'm, ima- I'm guessing that at some point, because you're going through the process of, of building a narrative and building a story, did it ever cross your mind or did you ever sort of tinker with the idea of what would have happened in your mind, in your story, if Moonlight Graham had got his at-bat? Uh, no, I didn't really think about that because it wasn't terribly important. I mean, if he uh, if he struck out, it would have been fine. If he had a home run, it would have been fine. It was just an at bat. And 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 I mean, you seem like someone clearly when you're writing who is not a big fan of sort of the cliche, uh, the easy, obvious Hollywood ending. So when you say it would have been fine if he struck out, it, it, complications are okay in stories like this. 
yes, I, uh, it was the uh, idea of him getting an at bat. Now, it's I think it's like this uh, fellow tonight. It doesn't matter if he if they throw three strikes by him or if he hits a ball over the fence. He he's got his at bat. It doesn't really matter. Well, I what? was I was going to ask you that because if if he does get up there and and one of the interesting interesting things about this story is that the pitcher he is more than likely going to be facing is the first knuckleballer to win 20 games in a season in 30 years since the year you wrote your story when Phil Necro did it. Uh, not an easy pitcher to hit against. So if he goes up there and flails away and swings and misses on three consecutive pitches, you don't think that that, that the story maybe ha- was more satisfying without the conclusion? Uh, I think the fans would probably like it better if he got a hit, but... Uh I don't think it really matters very much. It's the idea that they've uh, uh, made it possible for him to have a major league at bat. That's the story. You, you, you obviously have written enormously about baseball and written very passionately about it. Do you, do you still follow the game much? I uh, not as much as I used to. I, I still watch the Blue Jays on uh, on TV. I've watched most of their <laughs> terrible season. Mm. They've just. Uh, been decimated by injuries, so it uh, hasn't been a very exciting year, and uh, I don't know what the playoffs are going to bring. Just to go back for a second to the book, because I think it, it, the story, I think it's it's fascinating, and a lot of people have never heard a lot of the background of this. Did you, um, do you remember where you were when the nugget, when the, like the, the essence of this story, the, the root idea for Shoeless Joe hit you? Or what's what inspired well, I, it? I wrote the, uh, the I short wrote the story, opening chapter first, and it was published as a short story. Right. And, and do you remember I think, where? I think the essence of that of the of the whole novel, which I didn't realize at all, was at the end of that story. Um, my wife was typing the final draft for me, and I stopped her and I said. Uh, how far along are you on on the typing? Because I've got a little scene I'd like to add. And I think if she'd been right at the end, I probably wouldn't have done it. But the scene was uh, him meeting the father. Right. And I, I, it didn't even occur to me uh, uh, as I was writing the original story. So again, luck plays a huge part in what you write. And and was that something that came from from your background, or was that a, a just something that popped into your head? It was just something that popped into my head. And and at that moment, and what's when you talk about luck, I mean, you know this. I'm sure that there must have been thousands of people over the years who have come up to you and talked about reading or on the screen, seeing that scene. Well, what kind of response... And, and I think that one, tell me if I'm wrong, but I would guess that scene has inspired more response from that movie almost than anything else. What is the, what is the response people give you? What do they say about it when they see that? Well, I've, uh, I've had uh, people write to me and phone me and uh, talk to me at, uh, when I make appearances and, and that, and uh, it's always about that. Some fellow will say, well, you know, I was living in New Mexico and I drove all the way to Connecticut to take my dad to Fenway Park for a game and uh, that sort of thing. Uh, so it had a huge effect on uh, on people. And, and what you're saying right now is that was never the intent. It was almost an afterthought. 
It was an afterthought. Which is, which is, un, I mean, do you look back at that now and say, what? How could I have missed it? Well, or what would, what would it have been like had you not put that in, had it not occurred to you? I mean, it still would have been a fantastic story, but that is, as you say, uh, sort of the crystallizing the image. Yeah, that was the icing on the cake. I, uh, I, you know, there's no way of knowing what it would have been like if I hadn't added that. Do you, do you believe that Hollywood would have taken as much interest in it had that not been there? Because again, that is the moment that, that, that a director or a producer is going to love. I mean, they can build the movie around that and build to that. Yeah. You never really know. Yeah. Have you, now you, you say that was totally a fiction of a or a piece of imagination that just popped into your head, but many of the characters and many of the locations in Shoeless Joe that became Field of Dreams, we're talking to W.P. Kinsella, the author, they were real. They were places that you had had some experience with, you had lived in, or names you knew, or players you had read about or followed. I have uh, always tried to mix up uh, fact and fiction so people can't really tell which is which, and after a few years, I can't remember which is which. <laughs> well, when you're sitting down to write this, because they are places that are familiar and sights and smells and noises that are in your head, is it easy? D- do these things flow easily for you? When you sat down, did this story flow easily, or was this a grind to put this together? Uh, no, it flowed very easily. Uh, I, uh, I wrote the story, and it was read by an editor at Houghton Mifflin Publishers in Boston, and he wrote to me and said it should be turned into a novel, or if it was a novel already, he wanted to see it. So I immediately started thinking novel, and I just sat down and I just continued the story right on, and it was just like a baby. It took nine months to finish. Is that right? And, and is it true you were originally going to call it Dreamfield? Uh, no. That, okay. Uh, was um, the uh, the movie people made a choice between Dreamfield and Field of okay. Dreams? Okay. Um, I wrote it. So let's see. What did I what did I call it? I I originally called it the kidnapping of J.D. Salinger. Okay. I thought that would have public appeal. <clears throat> Shoeless Joe was uh, chosen by my publisher, and then Field of Dreams was chosen by the movie people. Do you uh, do you ever watch the movie? Have you? I'm sure you have watched the movie. Is it um, something? Uh, yeah, it comes on frequently on TV, so I'll watch parts of it, you know. And, and uh, what does a person who has written something that has become such a beloved movie, and it really has, uh, when you see that and you see that it's your work, do you, do you still feel anything? I mean, I'm sure that you did at the very beginning, the first time you saw it, either for better or for worse, but does it still inspire feeling in you? Uh, yeah, I, I still think they... Uh, when I watch it, I think they really did a wonderful job of it. I mean, uh, in nine out of ten cases, when Hollywood adapts a book to the screen, they screw it up totally. <laughs> and uh, I think John Grisham would agree with you in some cases. Oh, yeah. So the, uh, the only other writer I know who liked the movie made from their book was Thomas Keneally with uh, Schindler's List. Okay. But uh, mo- most times they ruin it completely, and I've had a couple of other... Uh, stories adapted that weren't up to very much at all. But uh, the young man, Phil Robinson, who wrote the uh, screenplay and then directed the movie, was just so in love with the story 
that uh, he just couldn't help but do something good with it. And did you participate? Did you have any say, or did you just disappear and let them do their thing? Uh, I had no say in it, whatever. Uh, Phil Robinson used to call me while he was writing it, and he'd say, look, I want you to understand <clears throat> that there's no way we can get a 300-plus page book into an hour and 40-minute movie. So uh, we have to cut characters, we have to telescope time, we have to change characters around to make them fit into this uh, movie format, because there is a great difference between a movie and a book. So I understood what he was, uh, what he was doing. Now, I, I don't even know if I'm allowed to ask you this next question, because uh, you, 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 rarely, you generally don't ask the artist to explain their art. It is out there for people to interpret. I, I get that. But I, I'm going to anyway on this one occasion, because I have you here. There are all kinds of debates when people watch this about who the voice in Field of Dreams, in Shoeless Joe, was really intended to be speaking to, whether it was Ray, the, the main character, whether it was Terrence Mann, whether it was Shoeless Joe, whether it was Moonlight Graham, whether it was Ray's dad. When you were writing it, was there one particular character that you had in mind that the voice was speaking to? Well, Ray was the one who heard the voice. Right. Um, but whose pain was it easing? Because that could be anybody's. Or, or you know, who, who, who was the one who... It, there were so many characters that the, the voice's words could have spoken about. Was there one in mind, or was it all of them? No, it was just some uh, in, indefinite voice out in the ether. Right. Well, getting back to tomorrow, because this is really, you know, the... the, the the timeliness of this, which again, I think is remarkable that 30 years after you imagined this, that it's going to happen tomorrow, you know, unless something bizarre happens, Adam Greenberg is going to get his one at bat. He's going to become Moonlight Graham plus one. Right. Um, what is it about baseball? And you've written again, as I say, you've written passionately and long, uh, you know, much about baseball. What is it about baseball, this example being an obvious one, that is so emotional with people and that lends itself to such great stories? Well, I think basically it's the open-endedness of the game. I mean, the other sports are twice enclosed, uh, first by time limits and then by rigid playing boundaries. Now, on a true baseball field, the foul lines diverge forever and there's no distance that you theoretically couldn't hit the ball or an outfielder couldn't run to retrieve it. And that makes for magic, and that, uh, that's what I've always uh, done, is combine magic with uh, baseball. Because, I mean, truly, I, baseball, led by yourself, baseball and boxing probably have been the two sports that have had the most um, beautiful stuff written about them. And, 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 you know, they're completely opposite ends of the spectrum, but the... Um, yeah, it's it's a remarkable thing. Do you are you a romantic about baseball? Um, not as much as my characters are. Okay. I mean, I I enjoy the game. I always have. I followed it uh, all my life. My dad had played a little minor league ball uh, long before I was born, and uh, he used to come home with a copy of what was then the St. Louis Sporting News uh, when he when he got out to civilization and. Uh, that's why I knew about baseball while I was growing up. And but you have you have lived through, especially in the last, let's say, fifteen or twenty years, so many 
great moments, but also so many problems baseball has had with steroids and other things. Are, are you someone who's able to overlook all those things or those blemishes add to, in a way, in a weird way, add something to the game, add some texture or some, some flaws that make the game interesting? Well, uh, the, the game will survive. Uh, these things are uh, like dogs barking at a caravan. Uh, the uh, dogs bark, but the caravan rumbles on. Uh, baseball will always be there. And again, I just have a few seconds here, but again, when you said it a moment ago that the fans, given a choice, the fans wanted Adam Greenberg to get an at-bat, and probably the fans would like him to get a hit. If you were writing the end of this story, what would be the more interesting ending to this story? Him getting a hit or him getting a home run and running right into the tunnel and disappearing or him getting out and, and not getting that hit and leaving it as, a, as an unfinished symphony almost? Uh, I would leave it at the point where he's standing in the batter's box waiting for the first pitch. Leave it to the imagination. Right. And it almost, because again, in a way, it some of the what some of the magic almost disappears when there is a real outcome to this that we know what the outcome is. Yes, yes, that's uh, it's anticipation is always nine tenths of the actual event. Well, I must let you go, but I just want to ask: is there is there a great? There are very few people who have written or composed or built something that does inspire such emotion in so many people is there a real sense of satisfaction in knowing that you did that 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 however it happened and i mean you talk about luck a bit but it's not all luck that you are the author of something that was incredibly special and incredibly meaningful to a lot of people oh yes i think uh, that's uh, what you strive for as an author is for recognition and have your uh, work uh, have an emotional effect on people and uh, i've succeeded uh, in that uh, a number of times so it, yeah, it's very satisfying that is that was wp kinsella back from 2012 it was 30 years then that he had written the book that became the movie sunday 30 years since the movie was released that doesn't mean 60 years by the way don't do that math that doesn't work uh wp kinsella by the way uh we had that recorded because wp kinsella passed away in 2016 Therefore, we couldn't have him on again today to talk about it. But uh, what an interesting storyteller. I mean, a fantastic storyteller, obviously. And just a fascinating story about how he put this together. And the idea that somehow that last scene at the end of the movie, where Ray Kinsella was throwing the ball with his late father, might not have been included is just... How does that movie, what's the ending to that movie if that doesn't, that's the moment that every guy watching cries. That and Lassie, probably, or Old Yeller. Take away the ending and it's just another good baseball movie. That's, that's amazing. That's, um, again, W.P. Kinsella from 2012. It's a while ago now. The Scott Radley Show. Weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML. The Scott Radley Show podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Radley. Thanks again for listening, and do not forget to subscribe to this podcast. It is free. You will never miss an episode. And also, be sure you rate us and review us. Whatever you think of us, we'll take it. Thanks for listening.